Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. The FT. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Patrick Jenkins. Joining me in the studio today are Martin Arnold, our banking editor, Sam Fleming, financial policy correspondent, and Emma Dunkley, our retail banking correspondent. On the line, we also have Anthony Brown, who's the chief executive of the British Bankers Association. Today, we'll be talking firstly about the latest spat between the Treasury Select Committee and banks over the senior managers regime. Secondly, looking back at Nationwide's results last week. And finally, reflect on what we learned from the WFT Banking Summit, which took place last Wednesday. Firstly, though, to that tale of the Treasury Select Committee and Chairman Andrew Tyree, who has been speaking about what he doesn't like in terms of supposed lobbying of regulators through the media. Sam, you wrote this story up over the weekend. This is basically uh, Mr Tyree subtly accusing banks of trying to influence regulators by leaking information. That's right. Back in October, there were reports in the press, widespread reports across the press, including in the FT, that two non-execs at the UK banking division of HSBC were resigning in protest over the new senior managers regime, which aims to increase personal responsibility for senior bankers as part of the reforms following the big financial crisis in 2008 to nine. And Andrew Tyree, following those reports, got in touch with Douglas Flint, the chairman of HSBC, to find out exactly what had been going on. And over the weekend, he published the correspondence between the Treasury Committee and HSBC, trying to uncover exactly why these two individuals resigned. The letter from Douglas Flint makes clear that Alan Thompson, who has indeed resigned as of October the 31st, that was partly because of burdens of timing in terms of his own personal workload, but also because he's concerned about the regulatory demands and incrementally, as Douglas Flint puts it, the senior manager's regime. John Truman has not resigned and is not about to do so, Douglas Flint said. However, he did back in July raise some serious concerns about the uh, impact of the senior manager's regime on non-execs and said he could indeed decide not to serve anymore on the HSBC UK banking unit because of these rules. Now, just to remind listeners, Mr Tyree has a very keen interest in this whole regime because it's the invention of one of the committees that he formally ran, which is the Committee on Banking Reform. Can't remember the proper name, Sam, but it delivered its full recommendations towards the end of last year, one of which was the creation of the senior managers regime. That's right. And I think his point in his statement over the weekend was that if banks do have problems with the new regime, then they need to come out with them and say them publicly rather than exerting pressure through the back door, which is what he seems to be suggesting HSBC was guilty of. As you say, the Parliamentary Commission on Banking came up with the senior managers regime. They did an interim report about a week ago looking at the implementation of the senior managers regime, saying that in the field of non-executives, there was an argument for its scope to be narrowed at least by one of the regulators. There are two implementations of this regime in detail. One 
one by the Prudential Regulation Authority, which is a division of the Bank of England, and one by the Financial Conduct Authority. For some reason, the two regulators have decided to implement it slightly differently. And the extent to which non-execs are caught by the two regulators' regimes differs. The FSCA catches more non-execs than the PRA. And the members of the Parliamentary Commission, which has now been formally disbanded, have suggested the FCA's scope should be narrowed in order to bring it in line with the PRA. Well, let me go over to Anthony Brown, the head of the British Bankers Association. Thanks very much, Anthony, for joining us. I assume you would endorse the idea that the FCA's definition of non-execs should be narrowed to limit the scope of the senior manager's regime. We do, yes. I mean, broadly, we support the senior manager's regime. We totally accept the arguments. You need greater individual responsibility and accountability within banking. That's clear from the PCBS work and the crisis. And the senior manager's regime is a good way to do that. And we're keen to make it work well. We do have a couple of concerns. One is about NEDs, as you mentioned, and this is particularly on the FCA side of things, the Financial Conduct Authority side of things, rather than the Prudential Regulatory Authority, two slightly different regimes. And we think it's important to appreciate the role of NEDs. And these are the non-executive directors who aren't chairman of the risk committee or the audit committee of a board. So their role is to independently challenge and to hold to account the chief executive and the executive management of the organisation. Our concern is that if they are made personally responsible for internal management issues, they will effectively become part of the management of the bank and they'll lose that independent role of challenging and holding the senior management to account and uh, that is our main concern there so we'd want that uh, narrowed a bit we've got a couple of other things we'd like to see changed a little bit one is the scope for the there's also rules of conduct as part of the regime and that is uh, again on the fca side rather than the PRA said, that's extended to pretty much all staff working for banks, including sort of back office and admin staff and so on. And our concern is there that a lot of these people, sort of admin assistants, you don't need to introduce a big bureaucratic regime there, or at least we can't see what the benefit will be to customers or to the market. If there are benefits to customers or to the market, then absolutely fine. We'll do it and we'll make it work. Do you think your views on that have been heard? Well, we hope so. We've been saying it publicly. We do consultation response and we share them. And we want it to work. We are clear, you know, we absolutely want this to work. We want it to work well and we support the broad arguments for it. And this is a process that goes on that we can say, you know, we think it will work better if you do it this way. So the question with the non-executive directors, they play a very important role as an independent challengers to the management. Does the FCA really mean to compromise that or do they accept that that might be one of the consequences of what they do? One of the other things that we're keen to do is make sure there's enough time to implement this fully, particularly the rules of conduct, which, as I said, would apply to almost all bank staff, that actually the current timetable for that is very rapid. And we've asked for a bit more time to enable to roll that out properly in a way that will really make a difference. What there's no point in doing is simply having some sort of tick box exercise where you get everybody working for a bank to tick a box saying they've read these new rules of conduct. That won't really make a big difference. What you've got to do is work out how they will operate for different people working in different places within a bank. If you're a computer programmer or frontline staff or senior manager, how do these rules of conduct impact the work that you do? What is the training you then need to do to make sure you understand that properly? What is the process you need to put in place to make sure that it is robustly upheld? That will take a bit more time to get that right for what you're really talking about is hundreds of thousands of people working across the industry. Now, I appreciate you won't want to talk about individual banks and in this case, the HSBC suggestions. But the broader point about the extent to which this is a huge burden on directors or senior managers and the extent to which that is 
putting good people off from doing this kind of job. It's something that's been raised publicly by some senior bankers. Do you feel that that's a big risk, actually? Well, it's definitely a concern in the industry. And this is for the independent non-executive directors who aren't chairs, the audit and uh, risk committees who've got slightly different roles within a bank. And it's definitely fair to say that there is fairly widespread concern that you're actually putting burdens on non-executive directors that it will basically be impossible for them to meet and there is a danger that you'll find it more difficult to get the sort of the good quality really experienced staff who've got non-executive directors who can do lots of other things in their life they could go and become non-executive directors in other industries for example without having some regulatory expectation that you're responsible for something that actually you can't in that role actually really have responsibility for so there is that danger there and again this is part of the dialogue that we need about making sure we get the balance right while i've got you anthony one final question I wanted to ask you was about Europe. End of last week, we had David Cameron's long-awaited speech on Europe, trying to strike a balance between uh, keeping the forces of UKIP at bay, but also not dismaying big business by uh, cracking down on immigration too harshly or indeed signalling a retreat from the EU altogether. Were you pleased with what you heard? Well, I'm very keen, we are very keen, that the UK remains fully integrated with the EU, that it's part of the single market, that it has full access to the single market, that access to the single market is one of the key reasons why London has thrived so much as a global financial centre over the last 10, 20 years. And it's also important that the UK retains as much influence as possible in terms of writing the rules of that single market. The UK government's in a unique position to understand the issues surrounding London as a global financial centre, and we want them to be there when the rules are being written with their hands on the pen, as it were, rather than excluded from the decision-making. We don't get involved in other issues, such as the benefits regime that uh, David Cameron was uh, talking about. But immigration is quite a key issue for the city, isn't it? It is. In terms of the single market and labour that we have, that is important to the city. A lot of people from France and Germany and Spain and Italy work in the city, and we certainly wouldn't want to lose the ability for people to move around between those countries. But also the other sort of main issue of immigration is actually non-EU immigration. And so this isn't part of being in the EU, but it's about enabling bankers, whether they're from America or China or Japan, to be able to come and work in banks in London. Very good. Anthony, thank you very much for joining us. Let's move on to the second topic of the day. Looking back at Nationwide's performance last week, they had results out, Emma, and still doing pretty well, although they've given up quite a big chunk of the mortgage business that they were writing go back a six months or a year. Yeah, still doing pretty well. Nationwide announced that it had lent out about £13.1 billion in gross new uh, mortgage lending in the six months end of September. And this is down by about a billion compared to the same period in the year before. And similarly, in terms of net new lending, this stood at around £3.6 billion, which is down by about £2 billion compared to the same period in the year before. Now, the reason for this fall in market share, which now stands at around 12%, is largely due to a lot of the incumbent banks returning to the lending market in the mortgage space. So they've spent the last few years obviously focusing on repairing their balance sheets, but they're now starting to come back to market and advance more loans. But aside from that, we've also had the mortgage market review early in the year, which really clamped down on banks and building societies lending to individuals by applying quite stringent affordability checks. So ensuring customers can afford to pay back their mortgage, essentially. 
So overall, Nationwide is obviously the biggest building society in Britain, but the building society sector as a whole has been dominant for the past couple of years in, in the mortgage space. But this signals that basically banks are coming back and maybe have reached a, a new kind of normal in terms of market share. It has. So Nationwide's market share last year was about 15%, and this has come back down to 12%. And Graham Beale, the chief executive, said that actually its natural market share stands at around 11%. So it's quite comfortable with the fall in that regard. It's not concerned to put it another way. And meanwhile, the banks are, as I say, are returning to this market. So we've got Lloyd's as the biggest with around 24% of the market share. And there was some fear in the year, as mentioned, that the mortgage market review would have a bigger impact than it actually has done. So, so far, it's it's had a bit of a, a muted effect in terms of lending. So there's an initial dip in the first few months after it was implemented in April, but subsequently it's had no real impact. Let's leave the uh, nationwide story there. So for our third topic, we will be reflecting on what we learnt from the FT Banking Summit last Wednesday. Martin, Sam, Emma, you were all there, key participants. We had a great range of speakers and panels. I think probably, Martin, the one that made the most news was um, someone who isn't really a figure in banking or the mainstream of banking anymore, the former chief executive of Barclays, Bob Diamond, who you interviewed on the fringes of the conference on video after he'd participated in the mainstream conference. His message was pretty clear. He's these days very focused on Africa and he was pretty excited. He was excited and uh, he was smiling. He looked very confident comfortable with what he was doing and confident that it was working. And basically what he's been doing since he left Barclays more than two years ago is investing private equity style in African banks. And the messages he had at last week's FT Banking Summit were largely twofold. One is there's a massive opportunity to invest in this sector of African banking and to pick up some of the opportunities that are being created there. The second message he had was the big banks have retreated from the stage where previously they dominated buying up any financial services assets that became available. Big global universal banks like Barclays that he used to run are now absent from the stage. They're not competing for those assets. They're in retreat. They're shrinking. In fact, they're selling assets and they're now sellers. And Bob was saying, well, you know, this is great for me because there's a lot of opportunities being thrown up by this and uh, I'm looking to pick up some of the juicy morsels that are being made available. And Africa, he points out, you can buy banking assets for close to book value as opposed to some of the other fast-growing emerging markets where banking assets are trading at many multiples of book value. And he sees the demography of Africa as particularly attractive with a young population that is fueling strong economic growth, uh, fast expanding middle class. And he sees the possibility of creating the largest sub-Saharan lender on the continent by uh, snapping up assets in different markets and piecing them together. Well, here's a clip of what he did tell us last week. I think it is going to be different going forward, and I think it is different today. But I think one of the things that excites me is it's not going to be less opportunity in financial services. We may be changing some of the models of how we do business. And so the opportunity for entrepreneurial business models is great. What we're doing in Atlas Merchant Capital is to look at the financial services industry that we're facing today this way. If you look at it from an equity market valuation point of view, financial stocks are down 35 to 40% since the crisis. If you look at the equity markets in the U.S. and the U.K., without financials, 
they're up 35 to 40 percent. So you have 22 percent of the developed market economy with a spread of 75 percent in their equity valuations versus the rest of the market. So there's something positive going on here in terms of value. But the second thing you notice is that there's an awful lot of businesses for sale. It's not mortgage assets, it's not loans. The Eurozone banks recently announced 1.4 trillion euros of non-core businesses that are gonna be for sale. It could be Barclays sale of their Spanish business, for example, and I think that went at less than half of book. But here's the thing, the valuations are down, so they're enticing. There's a massive amount of supply of businesses available. And yet the strategic investor of financial services for the last 20 or 30 years has been the big global banks. Virtually anything that moved was snapped up by one of the big global banks, and they're completely off the stage. In fact, they're sellers, and for all the reasons that people have been talking about today, they can't be buyers. So there are opportunities in financial services that there haven't been for 20 or 30 years. So I'm far from pessimistic on the industry. I think what we have to work through is what are the right models going forward? And I think, I think we're still figuring that out. Now, one of the other people who came to the summit and was actually the keynote speaker was Vito Constancio, who's the vice president of the European Central Bank. He gave the opening talk. And Sam, you were there listening to that pretty closely. He made several interesting points, one of which moved the markets. Yeah, pretty quickly, because he gave an extremely strong hint, probably the strongest hint we've had that the ECB is on the cusp of quantitative easing, including the purchases of sovereign bonds, and that this would happen in the first quarter. It was all contingent on what the economic developments are between now and the first quarter of 2015. But if things don't go in the right direction, then he said they would consider purchasing assets, including sovereign bonds in the secondary market in that period. The size of those purchases in terms of country to country variation would depend on that country's contribution to Eurozone GDP. This is something the markets have been waiting for for a long time, and he made a pretty strong indication that that's the way they're headed. The other thing that he said was a strong desire to see the extension of regulation into the non-bank sector, greater oversight of the systemic risks in non-bank financial institutions. That's obviously a theme that we've been tracking for months, if not years, but he uh, is clearly watching it very closely as well. Yeah, and he made the pretty clear point that he wanted the ECB as the new kind of pan and Eurozone regulator of the banking system to also do that macroprudential assessment of non-banks. Martin, so in summary, what did you take away from that? It was a pretty full day of debate. What were the other key things that you think came out of it? I would say the three big themes that came out of the day. One, as discussed earlier with Bob Diamond pointing this out, there was a lot of discussion of the universal banking model and whether it's still viable, whether it still works, whether it's been discredited and are universal banks in retreat Are there, and is there a need for banks to focus on what they do best and their core activities or instead of trying to be all things to all people and there was largely a consensus that yes they were you know, refocusing universal banks but a show of hands at the end, about 80% of those present thought that universal banks still had a, a role to play. Secondly was technology. 
we had a, a lot of founders and, and leaders of uh, these so-called fintech financial technology startups at the conference. And many of the people I spoke to were very interested in what they had to say and, and said they learned a lot from uh, the conference, particularly the peer-to-peer lenders and equity crowdfunding groups that were there talking about how low their default rates are and their rapid rates of growth and their optimism that they could become a, a more integral and established part of the financial system. So I think banks who were there would you know, realise that these guys are credible and they're a serious threat, but also learning from them as well and you know, looking to, in some cases, copy them or partner with them. And then finally, regulation, of course, massive discussion of regulation. The feeling, generally, the consensus I thought was that most bankers who were there thought we've now got to the point where we can see the end point. The banks feel they can see where the regulation is going. They think they can see how much capital they're going to be forced to hold over time. And broadly, the end game has become clear. They're still concerned about the cost of some of these things. Lloyd's chief executive, Antonio Horto-Rosario, talked about £5 billion cost if they're forced to implement account number portability, the ability for customers to take their account number with them when they switch banks. That was one example. PwC came out with figures of more than €20 euros for uh, implementing European structural reform for banks. So there were some big numbers thrown about as that this is the cost of regulation, but some optimism that we're getting towards an end game. So broadly speaking, a lot of excitement around Bob Diamond, around technology, interest in regulation, and a lot of interest in strategic question of universal banks. Excellent. Thanks for that roundup, Martin. That's it for this week. All that's left for me to do is to thank Martin, Sam and Emma here in the studio, and also Anthony Brown from the VBA down the line. Thank you also for listening. Remember, you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at ft.com slash banking. Banking Weekly was produced by Fiona Simon. Until next week, goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.